0: Open your Bibles, the Bibles that you brought with you, or the Bible that's there in the pew. You're welcome to use to 1 John, John's first letter. Chapter 2, verse 28 is where we're going to start in just a second, and that's page 856 if you're using the Pew Bible. And once you find it, or as you're finding it, take a moment to reflect on the following question. And if you want to use, again, there I did it again, use, <laughs> I'm in a very permissive mood this morning. Um, Use the sermon notes insert that's in the bulletin or the Kairos card to jot down an answer to this question. The question is this, well, who are you? (laughs) That's the big question, who are you? I was thinking as I said to the first service about having everyone get a name tag when they came in. But this was my non-permissive side. I didn't do that because I thought it would be cheesy. And I also knew there'd be a handful of you that would rebel and wouldn't do it. And then that would upset me. You know who you are. You know exactly who you are. You know, I'm not putting on a name tag. So instead, on that Kairos card or on your sermon notes, answer this question related to the question, who are you? How would you describe yourself to another person? We do this all the time meet someone new, meet someone we don't know all that well. How would you describe yourself to another person? What would you say? Just jot down a couple of words. Describing yourself to another person, what would you say? And as you're jotting down just a couple of words to answer that question, consider this question. Not only what would you say, and this requires you to really reflect and be honest, what do you actually say? Because in abstract, what we would say might be different from what we actually do say. They should be related, but they aren't always. So how would you describe yourself to another person? What would you say, and if it's different, what do you say in actuality? And as you make a note of this, put it aside, we'll come back to it in a little bit. We're continuing on in this first letter that John wrote to the church, and John is older and wiser when he writes this letter. One of the original 12 disciples he's writing, as we've learned and we will continue to see, in the midst of division and debate within the church. And even though this was written in a different age, long, long, long ago, this letter remains timely because sadly, not much has changed in the church. We still have division and we still have a lot of debate. And so John's words, as we've already seen, ring true, not only in his context, but they overlap into ours. And so, as we have much to learn from John, let's continue reading this letter. And again, the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3, starting at verse 28. John writes, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure." Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, keep those Bibles open, by the way, because you're going to want to keep looking back at it. We have a challenging part of John's letter. I don't know about you, but if you have that Bible open or as you were reading it, there's a particular part that seems to stick out. For me, my eyes kept coming back to it when I was preparing for this message. And it's these verses. Maybe they stuck out to you as well. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. So I'm not alone, right? Is everyone else right now kind of clenched up a little bit? This is a tough passage. This is one of those passages that makes us very, very uncomfortable. And just by way of not making any assumptions with anyone here, because this seems to center around a very important word, three-letter word, sin, let's briefly define, clarify what sin is. If you were with us last week, I told you that literally in Greek, the word for sin, harmatia, means missing the mark. But we might push further and say, what mark? What mark are we missing? And the answer is God's marks, the boundaries of creation that God establishes, of order, of what is right and wrong. We miss the targets. That's what sin is. We miss the targets the Lord has established, and we miss them either unintentionally, unconsciously, by accident, or we miss them intentionally, purposefully. Sin, full-blown, is going our own way. Or as John describes it here, it's lawlessness, It's rejecting and rebelling against our creator, against God. It's acting as if the world revolves around us. And in so acting that the world revolves around us, we change the targets. We rewrite the rules. We move the boundaries more to our liking and our preference. That is the quick definition of sin, and it's (laughs) full-blown. But let's assume for a second the best. Let's assume the best about ourselves. Let's assume that we're not willfully rejecting God, we're not in absolute rebellion against God in that sense of full-blown sin, but let's just say we're, we're at our best, we're seeking after God. In light of the definition of sin, can any of us claim to be outside of it? Can we ever? any of us claim that we never bend the rules, that we never cross the boundaries, that we never miss the target? And if we go further, if we extend this evaluation out a bit farther to how we treat each other because another way of thinking of sin on an interpersonal level is sin is when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Now, we're in a, at a time and, and it's come up before where we actually think that's a good thing. Everyone should be able to do what's right in their own eyes, but what that denies is the fact that is if everyone does what is right in their own eyes, somebody get hurt, gets hurt. It's not logically possible. And so another definition of sin interpersonally is when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And this is an important extension of how we understand sin because how we treat others, how we even treat ourselves, it gets back to, it reflects back to God as our creator. And so if we extend this understanding of sin, does it get any better? Are we blameless and perfect towards each other, towards ourselves? Have we always done right by everyone? anyone we've ever come in contact with. No. No. And so in light of this understanding of sin, we hear John's words, and if we're really honest, this is an impossible expectation. It's a very discouraging expectation on the surface of it. I mean, if I'm just gonna put it right out there, based upon what John writes here, it sort of precludes any of us for having a reason for being here this morning. Why did you bother showing up? It's hopeless. It's hopeless you're, just, you're I, me too. Why am I even, I shouldn't even go on. And, and, and as we sit in the un, how uncomfortable this is, we can push further and say, you know, what, what gets us is this is inconsistent with human experience. It's not just me. It's not just you. We all sin. What's John writing here? John, Pastor Chris, John clearly has to be making an overstatement, right? I mean, he can't mean what he writes here. And some of us who have been with this, in this letter with us from the beginning, we've only been a couple weeks in this series, or maybe you've studied it before, if you're really savvy, you might start to push back on John a little bit and go, John, seems like you're contradicting yourself here in chapter 3 with what you wrote at chapter 1. And if you have those Bibles open, just look at chapter 1, verse 8, for example. Because didn't John write these words too? Didn't John say, if we say we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth? John, which way is it? On the one hand, you're saying, hey, fess up. You have sin in your life. You're a sinner. And on the other hand, you're saying, well, if you sin, then you have no relationship with God. Which way is it? Let me give you the first, the obvious, if you're looking down at your your Bible, the English translation tries to do it, the easy resolution to this tension. And it's this. This is a translation issue. It's a matter of tense 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 in terms of how John's writing. John, For John, it's not about when he talks about sin, it's not about the exception, it's about the rule. John is not declaring here that we will never sin. What he's asserting is that if we are a follower of Jesus, if we belong to God, there will not be an ongoing trajectory of sin in our lives. The issue for John is not the occasional act of sin. Even though that matters, it's not to be taken lightly, but that's not what John is focusing on. He's talking about the pattern that characterizes our lives. In other words, what John is writing is genuine, sincere followers of Jesus do not want to sin. Therefore, an ongoing lifestyle of sin, of living in willful disobedience or indifference or even ignorance to God is not possible. So this gives us a little bit more breathing room, right? gives us a little bit more where we can maybe engage what John is saying, but there's a challenge here because while this clarification is helpful, if this is where we stop with just these verses that we're immediately drawn to, we're liable to hear John's call to righteousness in the wrong way. We're liable to hear John's call to obedience in an unhealthy and very damaging way. And that's what I want to try to show you briefly this morning. If we're not careful, we'll turn John's words here, even with this understanding that we've just had, this insight, this clarification, will turn John's words into a gospel of sin management. You maybe have heard that term before, the gospel of sin management. But if you haven't, what is it? What is the gospel of sin management? The gospel of sin management is where we invert the call to obedience, where we invert the call to avoid sin, where we invert the call to be righteous into just trying to be good. That's the gospel of sin management. And so we hear it as now, we've been saved by grace, but now we just need to try to be good. And so as a follower of Christ, we try to watch our language. We try. As a follower of Christ, we try to smile at and be nice to people we really don't like. We try to gossip less and to help others more. We try. The key is we focus on external things And what that means is that we try to do good in order to be good. That's the gospel of sin management. Another way to put it is we try to manage our conduct in order to shape our character. And this is what it looks like in daily life. In the midst of our inevitable sins, because we all make mistakes, conscious or unconscious, we all sin, we just get up and try again. And we just hope for the best in the long term. We hope for the best, even as privately we lament, we get to a place of maybe even just ignoring or we begin to doubt because nothing seems to change in our lives. Do you know what I'm talking about right now? This is that place of all of a sudden like taking off in our relationship with Christ and all of a sudden it seems like we flatline, right? We plateau. It's that place where we go, well, I, I guess this is as good as it gets. I, I guess I'm just gonna, you know, have these little things here and there that happen and I'll just try to do better. I'll just try real hard, and you know, I'm covered by the grace of God, but deep down inside, we get frustrated trying to manage those lingering sins, right? We get frustrated because, and we get to a place where we start to even just ignore them. Well, I guess that's just how it's going to be. Oh, well. Or we think, oh, uh, we start to doubt. Maybe Jesus isn't who I thought he was because I seem to still kind of be struggling in this place. The gospel of sin management is exhausting, right? Right? Because we try and we try and nothing seems to change and we either kind of learn to live with it or we just kind of ignore it or we secretly it harvests, harvests doubt in us. And the ironic thing that John in many ways is kind of bringing out is the gospel of sin management ends up ignoring God's plan. The gospel of sin management ignores the Lord's intention which is to remove sin from our lives. John, this is what John is writing to this church that's divided and debating. This is what John clearly states. John writes it right in the passage that we read that Jesus appeared not just to be some nice guy. Jesus didn't show up just to be some nice guy who talked about God's love and kindness, who offered us a clean slate of forgiveness, a clean bill of health start from scratch. He didn't just show up as a nice guy who promised us a place in heaven after we die. No, John says, these are his words, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In other words, beloved, God doesn't just want to manage the sinfulness at work in our world. God doesn't just want to manage it, compartmentalize it, fragment it. God's purpose God purposes to eradicate the problem of sin once and for all, to destroy, important, to destroy not the sinner, but the corrupting and disrupting influence sin has on our lives and our relationships and in this world. God doesn't want us just to plateau. This is good news. God doesn't want you or me or our world just to plateau. God doesn't go, well, we kind of got most of it. And sin management, is that's exactly what it is. It's kind of saying, well, the stuff that's left over, we'll just file and organize and categorize and put somewhere else. And God's not interested in managing sin because managing sk- sin skews our relationship with him and with each other, right? When you're managing your sin, you're always going, God, I'll just try harder. I guess I'm not trying hard enough. I'm really trying here, God. How come I'm trying so hard? Nothing's happening. It skews our relationship with God. It skews our relationship with, with, with each other. We try harder. Try harder. What do you mean I'm not trying hard enough? You see what I'm doing here? The gospel of sin management is exhausting and it skews our relationship with God and with each other and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's why for many of us, we've walked away. Or we've fallen asleep in our relationship with Christ. So what does work? How does God work? What is John trying to say? And this is where, context is key. Context is always key biblically. I, I've said this to you before, and it bears saying just again, a little brief advertisement. Always be careful of quoting Bible verses out of context. And we do that all the time. This is, you can take any verse in the Bible, and you can make it say whatever you want it to say if you take it out of the context in which it was written. And many times, you know, we, we practice this sort of fortune cookie faith, where there's certain verses we like, and we put them up there, but we sort of ignore the context. And the context is always key. Here, if we just look at this passage and all we focus on are the words that John said at the end, we get a very uncomfortable, we can get a very skewed understanding of what John is trying to tell us about sin and our relationship to it. The context is key. And so I take you back to, not just the context of the whole letter, but our passage today. Look at where John starts, because where John starts informs where he goes. Go back to verse 28. With me, go back to 29 and verse 1. Listen to how John starts. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know, could also be translated, since you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is what we are. Context. For John, for John, it's not first a matter of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. For John, it's a matter of identity. John says it repeatedly in this passage and throughout this letter. We are children of God. And this shapes everything else that he's about to say. We are children of God. We say that a lot. We've heard that a lot. What does that mean? First, when we say we are children of God, we are children of God in the sense that we are all created in the image of God. And that means all persons, whether they are believers in Christ or not, part of the church or not, are all children of God because everyone is created in the image of God. And it's out of that understanding that we view as people of faith, all life is precious. Every life matters Nothing changes this, even if they don't share our faith because they are created in the image of God, that all are children of God in that sense. However, from the perspective of our faith, our understanding of the story, we understand that something has happened. Something has happened. Sin has corrupted us. We define sin, but now let's go back to what we call in the church original sin. We use that term, original sin. And original sin deals with what happened, what changed us. And it goes all the way back to the origin, to the beginning, to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they chose to disobey God, when they chose not to be in relationship with God, they divorced themselves from God and started a new family apart from God, a relationship apart from God. And because of that separation, we are, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, all of we who follow after Adam and Eve, we're born into this world as prodigals separated from God. And that's why we act, come into this world acting like the universe revolves around us. No one ever has to teach you the universe revolves around you, right? You just kinda come to believe that by yourself, right? All of a sudden you just suddenly are convinced that you are the center of everything. And it it affects us because even ultimately in the end, this disconnect from God, this separation manifests itself and even when we're trying to be altruistic, even when we're trying to be loving, we have a hard time if we really, really go there between separating what we're doing for others, are we doing it for their benefit or for ours? To help you understand what I'm getting at here, this, this idea of original sin, this idea of separation, put it in more earthly terms, day-to-day terms. If you're born into a family, and all of us have been born into a family, if you're born into a family that doesn't have a relationship with another family, you're born separated from that family. And there are lots of families that you're separated from because you don't have a relationship with them. It's not because you don't want to know that family. Your family doesn't have a relationship with that family, so you don't. In a similar way, we are born into a family, the family of humanity, that is separated from God. And because of this separation, we don't automatically seek the things of God because we don't have a relationship with God. All of this, by the way, relates back to, in chapter 2, what we talked about last week when John cautions us against loving the world. And remember, the world isn't the world, it's the way of the world. The way of the world is this orientation that this life is all there is. This idea that there is no God or God doesn't care. Don't, John in other words is saying, don't believe that the world is your family. You're part of something bigger. When John writes what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, what he's getting at, what he's referencing there, he's talking about our rebirth. He's talking about our adoption, our return to the family that we are truly a part of thanks to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were once prodigal children of God. And that's why that story that Jesus tells us, that parable in Luke 15, resonates so deeply. We were all prodigal children of God. We left home. We forgot where home was. We rejected our father. We squandered our birthright. But Jesus comes and cleans us up. Jesus comes and heals us. He carries us home out of the father's love. So we are children of God in this deeper sense that we have been brought back into our true family by Jesus Christ By the way, just a little, again, another little sidebar, this is why in the Lutheran Church and in other expressions of Christianity, we practice, we tend to practice infant baptism, which is not to say that baptism in any other age is wrong or flawed at all, but we lean towards infant baptism because infant baptism is acknowledging this idea that on our own, apart from God, we are raised into a different family. But for a family that follows Christ, they're acknowledging this home, this world is not our home. This is not our family. And the act of baptizing a child is reclaiming our family name. So as that child grows up, even before they make a decision for themselves to say, this is your true identity. This is where your your identity comes from. It's not defined by what's out there. It's defined by what he's done for you. Who he is in you. And that's why we practice infant baptism. Now, Interesting thing is that in both cases, whether we're talking about our initial birth coming into this world as a child of God made in the image of God like we talked about first, or if we're talking about our spiritual birth coming into, to rediscover, to reclaim our identity as children of God in Christ, in both cases, both cases, earthly and spiritual, we have nothing to do with our birth. We have nothing to do with our birth. In both cases, the love that brings us to life is not something that we bought, that we can buy. It's not something that we earn. It's not something we can withdraw. All of a sudden, we are born into this world. And John in his gospel makes the same argument about our birth in Christ as children of God. We come into this life by the grace of God. Life is given to us in both senses. It's all grace. Life is given to us, it's all grace. What we do with that life is up to us. And even as I say what we do with that life is up to us, here's the, here's what is underneath that that is so, for me, reassuring. And I think for John is what he's trying to launch off of. We don't choose our family, right? Anybody choose their family? You may think you do, but the reality is family is family. You can dishonor, you can defame, you can even deny where you've come from, but the irritating reality, or hopefully the comforting reality is, your DNA remains unchanged. Your family is your family. And so it is with God. Our family is our family. But what John wants us to understand is birth is not the goal of our existence. Birth is not the goal of our existence. And what I mean by that is, think about it like this what parent would stop with the birth of his or her child? Can you imagine that? You're in the delivery room. Ah, Clean up the baby, put it on. Oh, all right. You made it. I'm done here. I mean, we would be horrified, right? You know, what parent would just be like, okay, I had a child. I'm good. I'm done. Moving on. No, we instinctively, I mean, at a gut level, right? We bring children into the world, with the desire to have a relationship with them. That's why it's so painful when we don't. More than other relationships, it's so painful. Someone that we brought into this world, someone that's connected to us. We bring children into this world with the desire to have a relationship with them. We bring children into this world with the understanding, hopefully, someone clues us in on this if we don't. We bring children into the world with the understanding we have to raise them, to provide for them, to teach them, to help them to grow and mature. And we carry, when we bring children into this world, a, a, a not unrealistic, not unfair, a realistic, a fair, a logical expectation. We carry a logical expectation for the children we bring into this world to reflect us, to resemble the family likeness in some way. Whether it's in their DNA, they look like us, or they, are, they, they are, deal with the same issues in terms of height or, or medical things, or even in terms, of, more than that, in terms of our morals and our values and our characteristics, we raise them in a certain way and that that is where even someone we adopt into our family we want to make them a part of our family and that's just an expectation we carry and this what i've just outlined for you the desire to have a relationship the understanding of having to raise them to help them to grow and mature the expectation that they will reflect us that they will resemble our family likeness in some way this is john's point about how identity our identity relates to sin Our father isn't interested in birth for its own sake, in just making us his children. If it was just about having kids, God could have left us as separated children, as lost prodigals. Yep, they're all mine. Look at how many kids, wow, am I amazed? Look at how many children I've populated the earth with. No, our father desires a relationship with us. We have a loving and involved parent who seeks our growth and maturity, who wants to provide for us. We can choose to deny our family we can choose to ignore where we come from, but our father will never disown us. Do you understand that? Our father will never disown us. And if you doubt that, again, scripture repeats this over and over again, but one verse that I'll just continues to come to mind, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. God will never disown us. He seeks us. He pursues us. That is the message of the Bible. He seeks us. He pursues us. He even dies for us. And that is why John writes, what wondrous love, what great love, what a privilege it, John writes, to be called children of God. And that is what we are. Not as that is what we will be. That is not what we will be if we're good. That is not what we will be maybe. That is what we are. What wondrous love. What a privilege to be called children of God. And that is what we are. And in John's context and maybe in ours, he has to go on because sometimes the notion of privilege can lead us as people to think in terms of entitlement. But that's not what John is trying to say is what it's all about. No, for John, with great privilege, and what is the privilege? The privilege is that we have confidence and security in our identity. We have confidence in who we are, security in who we are. Nothing can change it. We cannot be disowned. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Righteousness, bearing the family likeness, looking like our dad, looking like our brother. My friends, redemption a word that brings us together before the cross. Redemption is an illusion if, tra- if it is not transforming us in righteousness. If we are not being changed, why are we here? The whole presentation of the gospel in the Bible, the whole of scripture, is faith in the Lord changes a person. It changes him or her radically, which is to say down to the root. And out of that change, the Bible is clear again and again will come logically, naturally, supernaturally, a different life, a different behavior, a different way of being a human being in relationship with others and in the world. When you're adopted into a new family, you learn how to be different, to be like the family. And again, in case in what I'm outlining to you and we're all want to do it, you're starting to hear gospel of sin management You're starting to hear that this is all about God saying to you, hey, live up to the family name. It's up to you. Don't disappoint me. Notice where John, in this letter, places the emphasis in the relationship. We don't change ourselves, John writes. Our Father transforms us. It's not about being perfect for Jesus. And I know I'm speaking to some of you right now. I've been saved by grace. I know that. But I'm really trying hard to be perfect for Jesus because I don't want to let him down. It's not about being perfect for Christ. It's about being perfected in Christ. It's submitting to and depending upon our Father's guiding hand through the Word and the Spirit in order to live up to our name, to live out of our identity. My friends, good behavior doesn't make us God's children. Good behavior flows out of our relationship with God as his children. Our Father isn't saying, hey, figure it out. I've given you everything you need. Prove yourself to me. Our Father is saying, I want to guide you. I want to provide for you. I want to lead you. I want to teach you. I want to help you. I want a relationship with you. All I'm asking, all that's needed is for you to simply submit, follow, say yes. Let me help you. Beloved, what I'm saying What John is saying is we don't have to try to be good by doing good. We aren't trying to get home. We've been brought home. Do you know that? We aren't trying to earn our place at the table. We have a place at the table. We aren't trying to be good By doing good, we do good, John writes, because we are good, because it's all good. Our relationship with our Father has been redeemed and reconciled through Jesus Christ. And it is that confidence, it is that assurance of our identity in Christ that empowers us, that enables us, not just to manage sin, not just to manage the ling- lingering sin in our life, but gradually and ultimately to be victorious over it. To be victorious over it. And I'm, what I'm, I hope you're hearing in this contrast is this is, our, this is maybe the most important aspect of our struggle in the church today because it's our failure to realize who we are that causes us to stumble on this whole question of moral conduct and behavior. Identity is so simple on the one hand, and yet, it is such a deep concept on the other. And to draw this out for you, in a more maybe practical, day-to-day way, is is let me me lay it out like this. You and I, we can and we do engage our life on a day-to-day basis, overall, from one of three motivations. I really think it breaks down this simple. We engage our life from one of three motivations. And those three motivations are either we have to, we need to, or we want to. Okay? And here's the thing. Here's where I'm reflecting this gospel of sin management. Lots of people are convinced God's intention for us to live the life he has in store for us is because we have to or because we need to. And what I want to suggest to you is something different. But first, let me break down have to and need to. When we live our life in terms of have to, in other words, we're living like a slave. We have to. We're living like a slave. And so we have this resigned submission to God as a lowly servant. And on the one hand, that sounds really, really, that sounds good, right? Because we're submitted to God. But the reality is, is, if we're being really honest, is it doesn't play out. We live a double life, right? There's this part of us that l- lays ourselves out, sort of, you know, resign, submission to God. Well, God's God, and I'm not. What can I do? But on the flip side, that part of us that, that kicks against that is living that double life. It's living that life that sort of doesn't acknowledge, you know, kind of, I'm not, paying, not really being honest about what's going on here. I'm not kind of, you know, no one needs to know. It doesn't bother anybody. Have to is engaging our life with God as if we're just a servant or a slave. That resigned submission, that defeat. I need to. I need to is where we engage our relationship with God out of fear of consequences or the fear of a loss of reward. And this is turning God, it's treating God like an employer, right? Where God's like the worst boss ever. And so our relationship with God is, we're trying not to get, you know, in any trouble with the boss, but we're also trying to make sure we get the paycheck. I need to, right? Because if I don't, I might get fired. I might be, you know, I might lose my job. I need to, right? Because otherwise I'm not going to get that paycheck or that bonus, you know? We engage our life out of have to, resigned submission. What choice do I have? We engage our life out of need to. Well, I don't want to get in trouble. Or I want to get that reward. And for most of us, that's either or or both and. That's how we think our relationship with God is supposed to be. Either have to or need to. And the beautiful truth of the gospel, what John is saying in this letter, and he's not alone in saying it in the scriptures, is our Father desires for us to flourish, to become who we were created to be, to exist together as he intended, not because we have to, not because we need to, but because we want to. Out of love, out of joy, out of devotion. Stop for a second. Do you honestly think if God is who you think he is, do you think if God simply wanted a relationship with you out of have to, he could not enforce that right now? You don't think that God could strike you down, that God could start doing things in your life to make you a slave if he wanted to? Do you honestly doubt that that's possible? Do you think that if, from a need to standpoint, if God just viewed himself as an employer and you're his employee, that you work for him, that God right now couldn't get your attention very, very quickly? demote you, reward you? Is that how you think God works? Then what the heck do you do with this? What do you do with this world we live in? No, God could easily just say, you know what, this is so cleaner, I'm just gonna work with a have to relationship, I'm just gonna work with a need to relationship, you're fired. But God wants a want to relationship. He engages us and he wants our obedience, not as a matter of obligation, but out of confidence, with security and filled with pride in being a part of the family, of not trying to be good, but reflecting instead how good God is. Let me extrapolate this to our relationship with our own children. We all have some measure of power as parents. We were children once and know our parents had a measure of power over us. As parents, we very easily can take our kids to a have to or a need to place, right? Right? We can exercise our power to get have to and need to, and it can happen. Is that really what we want? Is that really what you want with your children? Besides that momentary, that moment of peace that you you get for the short term, is that ultimately what you want in your relationship with your kids? No, it is not. You don't just want to have a relationship with your kids based on have to or need to. One of the most beautiful, I would argue the most divine, closest to heaven as you can get moments in a relationship with your children or as a child to your parent is in that moment when your parent turns to you and says, you don't have to do this. You don't need to do this. And your child says, I know I don't have to. I know I don't need to. I want to. I want to. That's what it's all about, right? Isn't that the kind of relationship that we want with our children? Isn't that the kind of relationship we want with our parents? And again, our parenting philosophy is, you know what, you know what? the way we'll shape our, the character of our children is we'll punish them, we'll restrict them. We think discipline is the end all be all and there is a place for discipline. Please don't hear me. But discipline, apart from enforcing again and again, reflecting the relationship that our child have, children have, no, letting them know who they are. Who they are in your family. Who they are in Christ. Ask yourself. You've been on, the, on both sides of it. As if you've been a parent, you've either been on the receiving end as a child or you're on the, the giving end as a parent. Where does that get you? You can't force someone. All you can do is hope to awaken in someone, to reflect in someone the truth about who they are. And in that moment, when they say to you, I'm not doing this anymore because I have to. I'm not doing this anymore because I need to. I'm doing this because I want to because I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud to be a part of this family. That's what we live for. And for those of us who don't have it, isn't that what we long for in our own families? Is your life, is your relationship with God have to, need to, or want to? And you may find yourself with that question saying, I don't know how to live a different way. I don't know how to live out of my identity as a beloved child of God. And John gives us some guidance in this way. And it's guidance that really points back to when we're at our best parenting, what we glean from God's wisdom. How do we raise our own children to live out of their family heritage, to live out of their identity? We do it in one of two ways. The first is we encourage them to remember their DNA, if you will, to remember to remember who they are. And so we tell them who we are, where we come from, what shaped us as a family, that we talk about our identity. We celebrate it. We're honest about our identity as a family. And this may seem obvious, but I think it's more and more foreign in our day and age because I'm fascinated by the number of people I talk to who, and I'm talking young people now, young people who don't know where they've come from, who don't know anything about their family history who don't know their family background, who don't even know the names of their grandparents. If you don't know your identity, you're not gonna live out of your identity. And a great reflection of this in our culture that this is true, have you noticed the uprising in all of these uh, uh, web services for ancestry, right? Have you seen this commercial where you can take the genealogy DNA test, you send a swab of your DNA and you can find out really your background? Did you see the commercial where the guy thinks that he's Scottish? That's his identity. He's like got the, all the, the garb, the whole thing, and he does the DNA swab and finds out he's actually Irish. <laughs> it's funny, but it's reflective. We've lost our identity. We don't talk about it. The first place to live out of your identity as a beloved child of God is to remember. And here's the thing. You read the scriptures. You can't miss this. God is big on remembrance. Huge on remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. He's big on remembrance because God knows we have spiritual amnesia. How easy it is to forget who we are. This is a great opportunity to share this with you. We sometimes sing the ancient hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing that goes like this. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Remember it? Okay, if you don't, you'll you'll, trust me. Next time you sing it, you'll remember it. Every time we sing it, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, somebody, at least five people actually at the door will go, what's an Ebenezer? What's that? What are we singing? Is that like Ebenezer Scrooge? What is that? In that ancient hymn, Ebenezer is a word that means a memorial stone. It goes back to the story in Samuel where the people once again were in trouble and they cry out to Samuel, tell God to help us. And God helps and Samuel says, build a memorial stone so you will not forget that God not only helped you, but God is a God who helps. That's the whole thing. God is all about in the scriptures, pictures, stories, associations, touchstones, so that we remember who we are. We remember who he is as a way of remembering who we are. And the same is true within our own families. How do you remember where you come from? You have pictures of your family. You have, you tell the stories of your family. How do you live out of your identity as a child of God? Fill your, surround yourself with remembrances of your DNA, of who you are, of where you've been, of where you're going. And the second way, Remembering our DNA is one, but the second way that, again, we see modeled in Scripture is practice. How do we live out of our identity as beloved children of God? We practice that identity. Sermons are great. I love preaching. Family trees are wonderful, filling those out and kind of seeing where everybody falls on the family tree. But the thing is, and this is a big thing for us, it's not about information. We think information is what saves us you probably have more information than you know what to do with. In fact, to go back to memory, you probably have so much information you've forgotten what you know, right? Information is not gonna get you to that place of living out your identity. Me telling you stops right here. It's practice. It's not about information, it's about incarnation. It's about embodying our identity. Last week I said this, and I'm going to come back to it next week, this statement. We are what we love. And I'm going to take that apart next week. But let me add one more to go with it for today. We are what we love. We become what we practice. We become what we practice. Our practices shape us. We call them habits. Our habits shape us. What we consume, where we focus, shapes us. We like to think we're better than that, we're smarter than that, we're bigger than that, but the truth is, what you consume, where you focus your attention, shapes your sense of your identity. What practices or habits are shaping you? Do you even know? And think about how many things you don't even think about that you go through your day, you just do them because you've always done them. Have you ever thought about how they're shaping you? How they're reflecting your identity? John puts it this way, in case you think I'm just making this stuff up. John puts it this way, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What is John getting at here? We are made pure by Christ, but John says purity is a state that has to be maintained. I get dirty. (laughs) Are you one of those people that you didn't even get around anything you thought was dirty and all of a sudden you've got dirt on you, right? We get dirty. We have to get cleaned up. We get cleansed. John talks about it in another way. He talks about us being in the light. Light dispels the darkness, but the light has to be kept on. If we were to take out all the light in this room and and close the mirrors and it became pitch black and I light a candle, the light dispels the darkness. But if I leave the room with that candle, the darkness comes back like this. Illumination is the key. The practice of illumination remaining in the light And one of the first ways we practice living out of our identity, and I know I say this ever a lot, but it's the the answer. One of the fundamental ways we practice living out of our identity is being in, dwelling in, abiding in the Word. The Spirit seeks to lead us there, not for information, but so that we can remember, so that we can learn more about our identity. We talk about snuggling up with a good book, right? Oh, I would love to snuggle up with a good book, those of us who like to read. That's what God wants. God wants us to snuggle up with him and not just receive information, but illumination. This book we call the revelation of God. And The difference between revelation and illumination is this. Revelation means we have complete in scripture all we need to know about God and all we need to know about ourselves. And it's made complete in Jesus Christ. This is the full revelation of God. Why do we keep coming back to it once you've read it cover to cover? Well, I read it, so why do I got to come back to it? For illumination. What's illumination? It's the ongoing process of the Holy Spirit bringing the truth and relevance of the scriptures to light. Helping us to apprehend and comprehend our relationship with Christ as it impacts our day-to-day lives one of the most fundamental practices of living out our identity is the illumination of being in the word but then there are practices that we do not in isolation but in community we practice as a family like you raise your own kids you know you ever notice this disconnect by the way as a parent you know you can tell your kids you can threaten them you can punish them about how they ought to behave right but here's the thing if you don't practice it they're not going to learn it you ever isn't that one of the most frustrating things about parenting you know, and we, throw, we try to get around it by saying, hey, look, do what I say, not what I do. But the reality is, kids do what you do. You don't like what your kids are doing. Somewhere within, you need to look at yourself. Not just at them, and you may go, oh, I don't do that. And how many of you ever had your parents go, uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Practice. We have to practice things as a community. To live out of our identity together. And the practices the scriptures call it to our acts of compassion. Acts of generosity. Acts of forgiveness. Acts of justice and service. By the way, that's why we come together. That's why you want to come to church. Be part of the body. Because we're practicing as a family. We're rehearsing on Sunday. The very things that aren't supposed to be for an hour on Sunday. But to inform our lives. What do we do? We practice generosity through the offering. We practice forgiveness through the prayer and through the sacrament of Holy Communion. We practice compassion and extending the peace to one another. We're practicing how to live out of our identity. And it's not just how you do church, it's how you be the church. Because the thing is, if you perceive and understand, this is also John's point, yourself as a child of God, if you understand your identity as a child of God, then you can't help but perceive and relate to others, each other as brothers and sisters, as those who are part of the family. The vertical informs the horizontal. What practices Again, I ask you this, and I'm asking you to get real deep here. And, it, and you may have to actually, like, think in a way that you don't normally think, because a lot of this stuff is just, when it becomes a habit, we don't even think about it. Think about when you learned how to drive. When you first learned how to drive, you paid attention to everything, right? But now when you drive, do you even think about how to drive anymore? In fact, you could have an argument with a spouse or a loved one, get in your car and drive home, and not even realize you were driving the whole way because you're still thinking about the argument. Habits become internalized. So what I'm about to ask you asks you to really be, go deeper. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your time? What do you do with your time every day? What occupies the majority of your attention? Where do you find yourself focusing the majority of the time? What are you filling yourself with? What are you taking in consuming visually, ears, mouth? What are you consuming? Because those are the practices that are shaping you. Those are the practices that are giving you either a false identity or your true identity in Christ. We are what we love. We become what we practice. And so my friends, this morning, I'm inviting us to take a long look in the mirror of our spiritual reflection and to ask what reflection of our identity do we see in the life we live. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon to write down how you would describe yourself to another person. I asked you how do you describe yourself to another person because sometimes there's a disconnect anywhere in there did you write down child of god beloved follower of christ because if you want, don't write it down when I'm asking you who you are it's not then you're not tapping into your identity you know I know it yeah I know No, that is the first and foremost, your identity. That's the starting point. Everything else, and and I'm gonna guess, if you didn't write that down, what you wrote down, and this is exactly what we're talking about, you wrote down all the things you do. And those things don't define you. They come out of who you are in Christ. Because if they define you when they're taken away, who are you? But if your identity is in Christ and that can never be taken away, then your identity is solid and secure and confident. The Bible never asks us to do anything. Did you know this? The Bible never asks us to do anything without reminding us first who we are. The Bible never, God never says to us as our father, you are better than this in some guilt or shame way to suddenly, you know, jumpstart us. God always says when he reflects to us through people like John, you are better than this. Not guilt and shame, but inspiration and encouragement. This is who you really are. This is what you're capable of. This is what you're meant to be. And again, as parents, that's the right kind of parenting, right? Not to guilt, our shame, guilt and shame our kids into who they're supposed to be because it doesn't work. It makes it harder for them to discover their identity. It's instead to inspire and encourage them. This is who you are. This is who I see you as. This is I love you not because of what you do. I love you because you are my son and my, or my daughter. I'll end on this note. I want to see Jesus. I want. I don't have to. I don't need to. I want to see Jesus. I have not always been at this place. I have not always understood my identity in Christ. And I am so passionate in my want to see Jesus that I can also say this to you. I want It is why I do what I do. I want others to see Jesus when they look at me. I can't get up here and do this. I can't be your pastor if I had to or I need to. I wouldn't make it. I would have quit a long time ago. I want to. I want to see Jesus and I want others to see Jesus when they look at me. My friends, I used to be so afraid, and maybe you can relate to this, I used to be so afraid God would hurt me when I sin. I used to be so afraid I literally would duck for cover because I was convinced God was gonna get me when I was committing sin. And on the on antithesis, back to the employer model, I used to think when things were going great in my life, God was rewarding my good behavior. And because I understand who I am in Christ, I'm coming to understand. I haven't gotten there yet. But because I'm trying, I'm not trying, I'm trusting out of my identity in Christ, I am no longer afraid that God is gonna hurt me when I sin. I let go of that fear a long time ago. Instead, I've learned to love God so much, I don't wanna hurt him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to reflect the Lord as a liar to the world. Beloved, if we don't embrace or accept our identity in Christ, we will never live the life we were meant to live and it's a good life. If we don't know who we are, if we don't know who our daddy is, we will spend all of our time, all of our energy, all of our lives searching for or trying to define our identity rather than living out of it. And our lives will waste away. They'll become frustrations. Confidence, security comes by abiding remembering and practicing the truth about who we are, whose we are. Every day, every day the Spirit is at work in you. Every day the Word of God stands before you. Every day the body of Christ is available to you to help you to become your true self, your full self, your best self as a beloved child of God in Christ. So let us, instead of existing as people who are trying to be good, Let us realize goodness is ours through the Holy Spirit because we have been made children of God by the grace of our Father through Jesus Christ. And out of that confidence, out of that security, the confidence and security of this identity, let us share the goodness of God in word and deed with those around us, with our brothers and sisters. Amen.